Lord, this is a great, uh, a great thought. I'm no longer a slave to fear because I am, we are, children of God. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a new identity as your children, a new relationship with you, and you've called us to a new life. May we live in it, may we enjoy it, may we celebrate it, and may we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good to see you this morning. How are you? Good. Good. Two of us are good. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> All right. What are you looking forward to? I know some of you are thinking, man, I'm looking forward to the end of this series on Romans. <laughs> We've been having a great time uh, kind of digging in and digging deep into the book of Romans for uh, the last few months. And we have a few mes messages left. And today, uh, we want to talk about Romans chapter 13. This message is called Love, the Law, and the Coming Day. And uh, I've been thinking about this Romans 13 for quite a while because actually in my background, it says some things that are not easy to hear. And I kind of grew up in the radical, countercultural 60s, and, and all this talk about submission to government was very uh, kind of against some of my natural bent. But I want you to hear what Paul is saying here in Romans uh, chapter 13. It's not just about submission to government, but he does start off that way. And I was thinking about this. I think this is a very important uh, issue, maybe especially because this is an election year and all of that. But uh, I want you to think about the first century context a little bit. We've talked about how Paul probably wrote this letter about 57 AD, uh, about 20 years, 25 years after Jesus was uh, crucified and resurrected. Uh, Paul has been a Christian about 20 years at this point. He's been traveling around doing missionary work, but one place he's never been is Rome, right? So he's writing probably from Corinth, 57 AD. He's writing to the church at Rome. He's anticipating a visit there. He knows quite a bit about the church. He's done some research. He knows that, you know, it's kind of like the, the center of the Roman Empire and that the church there is kind of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, in, in the chapters before chapter 13, he's made a a really strong point about everybody's guilty, everybody's sinful, everybody's accountable to God, uh, everybody is kind of hopeless apart from the grace of God, but everyone, Jew and Gentile, can be saved uh, by the grace of God through faith. So if the uh, gospel declares that people are free from the law and, and free from uh, the obligations of the law, then there's a question of how are the Christians in Rome supposed to relate to Roman authority, which is largely based on law? And in that day, imperial power was very powerful and uh, very coercive, also sometimes unjust and unfair. And also the government was sometimes intertwined or interwoven with various uh, religious deities and all of that. So Paul, I think, is addressing this question, how are the Christians to live in this increasingly uh, you know, godly, godless environment? And I, I want us to think about this for our situation. Of course, we live in a in a political climate that's very, very different from imperial Rome. But I think what's similar is that we also live in a godless age, right? We live in an increasingly secular, post-Christian world. And uh, we know that ultimately our, our submission is to Christ and he's the ultimate authority over all of the universe. But the question is, well, how do we view the, the human authorities, the governing authorities? And we want to talk about that today. I think Paul wants to talk about it and maybe... Uh, he will allow us to listen in. Here's what he says, Romans chapter 13. First, we'll start with verses 1 through 7. 
which is really about submitting to the governing authorities. Here's what he says. Let everyone be subject to the governing, governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but just listen to this. Let's hear it out. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. That means they have the authority uh, to punish. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to, b to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. And this is why also you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If you owe respect to someone, then give respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, so what are we to make of this uh, submission to governing authorities? And I think a couple things Paul is saying here. One is that he is saying very clearly that the king, kings and magistrates and governments uh, are ordained by God and that they rule by the consent of God. Now, therefore, uh, believers in Christ who, who submit to the ultimate authority of God are to respect the governing authorities that God has put in place always with this eye toward uh, the governing authorities uh, rule under the supreme authority, which is our Lord God himself, the creator and his son, Jesus Christ. So God is uh, ultimately the highest commander, but God has uh, ordained uh, governments, and, and, uh, and we see this kind of all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes God would raise up a nation or a, a power like Assyria and even allow them to conquer his people, Israel, or at least the northern kingdom and and then later he would uh, raise up a power of the power of Babylon and allow Babylon to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. It was like well, all throughout the Bible we see this, that God is really in control. And sometimes he can even use pagan nations like Assyria and Babylon to fulfill his ultimate purposes for Israel, his own covenant people. And so there's ways that, you know, we can't always understand God's ways and, and we often don't understand God's ways. But we have this assurance that nothing happens in this world without God allowing it to happen. So we know today, in the world today, there are some governments that seem to be more just, more equitable, more fair, and other, other governments that are not. And uh, so what is he saying here? Well, we know this, that Paul himself, he knew much of unfair governments. He knew what it was to, to do right and still be imprisoned or whipped or beaten and, and, and persecuted. And, and so he's not naive about this, but he is saying this. When you think about the Christians in Rome, you know, in the Roman Empire, he's saying that just because you're now free in Christ and just because God is now your ultimate authority, it doesn't mean that you are free to disregard or to ignore uh, the civil, civil government and the civic government and civic authorities. He says, we still, we live in this, and, and partly I think what he's saying is that, I mean, obviously he's saying that God has allowed every government to be in place and God is the one who overthrows governments as well. Uh, uh, that he's in control and we have to trust his control even though we don't understand all of what he's doing or why it's happening. But uh, also he is saying this, that uh, as God's people, we are to live as responsible citizens. 
And whatever society we're in, whatever culture we're in, whatever governmental system we're in, we are to, as much as possible, be responsible citizens. We are to do our duties, we are to obey the law, we are to pay our taxes, and all of that. Uh, our nonconformity to the world, and remember in chapter 12, he says, you know, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, and then he says, conform no longer to the ways of this world, and don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's very true, but nonconformity to the world doesn't mean that we ignore the earthly institutions. The government has a responsibility uh, to maintain order in society, and we're called to submit to those governing authorities and to be responsible, tax-paying citizens in submission to God. Now, does that mean then we just accept everything about the government? It doesn't mean that. It does mean, though, that we submit to God because, one is, you know, uh, we submit to the authorities because the authorities have the ability to punish wrongdoers. And so to avoid punishment and to avoid living in fear, uh, we should live, you know, as law-abiding citizens. The other thing he's saying is that it's not only to avoid punishment, but to keep a clear conscience. And, um, you know, that we, we would know that, hey, we're doing right. We're living in the right way. Now, does that mean that we can always obey the laws, that we should always submit to the government? I think this is what Paul would say, is that we are to submit to the government, we're to honor the government, unless doing so would cause us to disobey God or dishonor God. And, and this did happen sometimes. There, there is a lot of places in the Bible where we see practice what we, today we might call civil disobedience. Let me just give you a couple examples from Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, uh, we see this. There are limits to the reign of government. And in Acts verse, chapter 4, verses 18 to 20, uh, two of the apostles, uh, Peter and John, have been uh, arrested wrongly. They're just proclaiming Jesus, but they are arrested. And then they are told to no longer mention the name of Jesus by the authorities at that time. And uh, here's what it says in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. It says, Then they called them in again. They, they as the, the Jewish authorities and, and um, you know, the ruling council, they, they called them in, Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is Acts 4, verse 18. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him, you be the judge? That's a pretty convicting, penetrating, I think, confrontational question. They are saying, yeah, we, we honor and submit to the government. We live in this society. We live by its rules. But at the point where you're telling us to do something against God, who should we obey? Which is right, to obey God or the rules and, and the authorities of, of, of humankind? He says, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. And then uh, Acts 4, 20, verse 20. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so basically, that is an act of civil dis disobedience. He's saying, you know, we'll follow the government as long as we can, but at the point where the government is trying to stop us from following God's will and proclaiming his, his, his message, his news, he says, you know, you decide whether you're going to obey God or obey the government. But he says, as for us, we cannot help but proclaim what we've seen and heard. In other, in other words, the, the witness uh, takes precedence over other worldly authorities. Now, in the next chapter, Acts chapter 5, uh, you see a very similar kind of thing. In Acts chapter 5, um, verses, verses 27 to 29. Acts 5, 27 to 29. 
The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And again, the Sanhedrin is the ruling Jewish council. They're in authority under, under imperial Rome, but uh, they had a certain amount of authority in their homeland. And so it says, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Here's what, here's what the Sanhedrin say. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, in the name of Jesus, right? Yet you, have, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And they were preaching this message that, you know, Jesus the Messiah came and that the Jewish leaders had him crucified. So, you know, nobody wants to hear that message if you're a Jewish leader, right? It, and so he says, you've made us guilty of this man's blood, and, and we told you to shut up. We told you not to spread this message. And here's Peter's response, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than men, right? So once again, you know, there are certain uh, limits to government authority. And if the government is calling you to, to do something that is against God's will, then you've got to choose who you're going to serve. Uh, you know that I've been spending some time in uh, East Asia and sometimes in, in nations where Christians have suffered a lot of persecution uh, in Vietnam and sometimes in Cambodia, but recently I was in Laos, which is quite a restrictive country. And, uh, you know, I, I call it rubbing shoulders with some salty saints, getting to meet uh, Christians and sometimes leaders and pastors who've been in prison for their faith. And I remember getting to meet this one woman who uh, we got to travel around with her as she's visiting some of the churches that she oversees. And I, I think she oversees about 20 churches. These are rural churches, small churches. And, and she visits them and cares for them and, and uh, encourages the leaders and, and advises them and counsels them. And we got to travel around a little bit with her and visit a couple of the churches that she oversees. And, and it was just, you know, really fascinating, although very sobering, to hear her story because I'm wondering, how did this woman get in this position of influence over all these churches? And really what happened was that it was her husband that was leading that ministry. But about 15 years ago, her husband was executed by the government. And, uh, you know, you would think that if, if you're the wife, it'd be very tempting just to cave in and withdraw and flee for safety because, you know, they killed your husband. But she didn't take that um, path, and she just stepped in and has assumed the leadership of the, the ministry that her husband was leading. And I'm thinking, you know, in many cases, uh, there are Christians in other parts of the world that have to defy the government in order to fulfill their calling. And so if it ever comes to that, and sometimes it comes to that in this, you know, this nation as well, then we have to say our ultimate authority is to God. But that's not to be just an excuse to be bad citizens or not pay our taxes or not respect, you know, uh, the police force or something. I, th I think that we are called to have this attitude of, you know, the, the governments have been placed there by God, and we should be good citizens. It doesn't mean we never try to change the government. Uh, you know, we're in this big election year, and I don't know, you know, where you stand on the political issues or who you're going to back or whatever. I think it's very valid for Christians to be, you know, uh, to study the issues and to be involved and to vote and all of that. But, but this I want to say, too. We don't place our ultimate trust in the government or in the outcome of the election. Maybe the person that you feared uh, or that you, you dread would become the president of the United States. And, and if that happens, it's not like, well, the cause of Christ is lost, right? That we've seen this, and you, if we read our Bibles, we see this, that God can use evil empires and good empires and, and good rulers and godly rulers and, and unjust rulers, that God is in control. So we don't trust in our political process, although we should be involved in it. That makes sense, right? 
Uh, we should be informed citizens, and we should be active citizens, we should be responsible citizens, but we don't place our, our hope and our trust in government or in the, uh, the outcome of elections. So I think that's a lot of what these first seven verses are about. It's about um, submitting to authorities, but also recognizing that all authorities are not good. Uh, you know, when I was in seminary at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena many years ago, I, I took a class uh, that was uh, taught by visiting professor Jim Wallace from the Sojourners community. He was the founder, one of the founders of the Sojourners community in Washington, D.C., and he's the, uh, even today, still the editor of Sojourners magazine. And one thing that he said was he grew up in Detroit. He's white, Caucasian. He grew up in Detroit, and he said, when I was growing up in Detroit, my mother always told me, if you're in trouble or you need help, look for a police officer, which kind of made sense. I, I was brought up that way, too. I don't know about you. But he said, as he got older, he was shocked to discover that some of his African-American friends, by their mothers, were told exactly the opposite. If you're in trouble, and you see a police officer, run and hide. And it was shocking, and it, it kind of, you know, promotes, I mean, it kind of reveals the whole disparity, or some of the disparities in our culture. Uh, and, you know, of course, this was decades before Black Lives Matter and all of that. Uh, so we've been reminded lately, and I think we need to be mindful as Christians too, that black lives do matter. Uh, you know why? <laughs> because all lives matter. All lives matter. I was talking with a, a police officer in California and he was saying, yeah, black lives matter, but you know, police lives matter too. And it was a good point. And he, you know, he had some bitterness against some of the way the police officers are being uh, abused and, and uh, depreciated, devalued. But uh, I, I think on this, we've got to say, you know, all lives matter. Black lives matter, but so do other lives. And so do, you know, those who work for the government. Um, and... We just have to really believe that and hold up to that. And, and one of the things the Bible says a lot is that uh, among God's people, there's not supposed to be partiality. We're not supposed to favor the rich over the poor or one race over another. A lot of the book of Romans is about, you know, Jews who thought they were superior and Paul's kind of humbling them and, and then uh, Gentiles who, who kind of lorded over the Jews and felt like, oh, God's done with the Jews and now we're the chosen people of God. And, and Paul often has to tell them, don't be arrogant, don't be conceited and and uh, in Christ now, the Jewish-Gentile thing, it really doesn't matter. It makes, doesn't make any difference. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God for everyone is forgiveness and reconciliation through faith in Christ Jesus, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so I, I know this doesn't resolve all the questions that, that we have regarding our relationship with the government, but I, I do think that this maybe gives us a start, that we are to respect and honor the government, but also recognize that our ultimate authority is to God, and that ultimately God will hold you know, government officials uh, accountable, maybe in this life or in the life to come. Okay, let's go on to the next section. The next section, in uh, going back to Romans 13 is about love. It's about loving as Jesus loves. And here's what it says, Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Now, he, he's already just said, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. And if you owe your debts, you know, you should pay those debts. Here's what he says in Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. 
Let me read that again. Let no debt remain outstanding. It doesn't mean that you would never have a debt. Like, is it, is it ungodly or unbiblical to have a, a mortgage? Should you never buy a house unless you can pay cash? Nowadays, sometimes it seems like you can only buy a house if you can pay cash. But um, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's never valid to take out a loan. What it's saying, though, is be responsible in paying off your loans. You know, don't default. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. He said, this is a, this is a, a duty, an obligation that we're always going to have. You never say, oh, I paid that off. I, I loved other people, and I'm, I'm kind of done with that. I can wash my hands of that and move on to something else. He says, this is something you're going to live with the rest of your life. You always owe this. You always owe love to one another. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, and here he's just going to list four of the Ten Commandments. You know where to find the Ten Commandments? In the Bible. Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. He doesn't list all Ten Commandments here, but he lists four of them just as examples. Here's what he says. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. That's four of the, the big ten, right? And whatever other commandments may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So now I think we're kind of maybe Paul is addressing another question, and that's the question, if we're really saved by grace through faith, then what is the ongoing role of the law? Do we just disregard the law? And, and basically what he's going to say is, let me tell you what the heart of the law is all about. Let, let me give you the summary of it. He says, love is the sum of the law. That the, the law can all be summed up in this command. I think this is uh, verse 9. He says, uh, whatever other command there is, all these commands are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying that love is the sum of the law. And then in verse 10, the next verse, he's going to say that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, the law is still valid, but we have to get to the heart of the law. The heart of the law is about loving one another and then loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving one another and loving your neighbor as yourself. We're called to love each other which is, I think, reference to, you know, love one another within the family of God, within the community of faith. We're called to love one another. But then he also says we're called to love our neighbor. And you may remember the story that Jesus told about that when somebody said, well, who is my neighbor? You know what Jesus said? He told them the story of the Good Samaritan. Let's look at that for a moment in Luke chapter 10. For some of you, this might be a very familiar story. For others, uh, perhaps not so familiar. But I, I want you to look at something. Bef before you get to Luke 10. Let me read this. This is from Matthew 22. One of them, these Pharisees came to Jesus, Matthew 22, 35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this is a good question because Pharisees and teachers of the law, they, they would debate that question. Uh, devout Jews who knew their Old Testament well had distilled the Old Testament laws down to a list of 613 laws. Okay, so I don't know about you, that feels a little overwhelming to me. We have a hard time remembering 10 commandments, but can you imagine 613 laws? So one of the things that they used to talk about is, well, of all these 613 laws, which is the most important? So on this day in Matthew 22, a Pharisee, an expert in the law, he comes to Jesus and he says, what do you think, Jesus? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
And Jesus replied, love, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. One of the other gospels adds, and with all your strength, right? Love the Lord your God with all your your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said this in Matthew 22, verse 40. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That doesn't mean you disregard the others. But he's saying, if you want to get to the heart of it, and if you're not smart enough to remember and practice 613 laws, let me, let me give you the Cliff Notes version. Here's the Cliff Notes version. It all hangs on these two, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and, and all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So if you can't remember 613, that's okay. You can still be a godly person if you would do these two. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, so one time somebody says, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus told this great story in Luke chapter 10. I think it's probably one of the most loved and cherished and, and remembered stories in, in human history. But here's what Jesus said. This is Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He said, Jesus said, how do you read it? And, and the man answered, remember, this man is an expert in the law. So he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Good answer, right? And, and so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Uh, do this and you will live. But here's where it turns a little bit sinister. Uh, Matthew, I mean, Luke 10, 29. But he, this expert in the law, wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, now in, in his culture, uh, the neighbor would have been viewed as fellow Jews. Okay? Very important, we understand that. Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now, presumably, this is a Jewish man, right? He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, of course, who's a, you know, a Jewish religious leader, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Oh, that's cold. Right? Not only do I not want to help you, I don't even want to look at you. I don't want to feel the awkwardness of, of being too near you. I don't want our eyes to meet. And so be, long before I arrived there, I crossed the street and, and passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, another kind of religious leader, right? Uh, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, I used to read this and I used to think, well, you know, they're priests and Levites. They've got religious responsibilities. What if they're on their way to church, right? Because I've thought about this sometimes, like driving to, driving to church on a Sunday, and I know I've got a, you know, responsibilities in the service, and I've got to give a sermon. And, and, and what if I see somebody on the side of the road that has a flat tire? Should I stop and help, or should I you know, carry out my religious duties? Okay, I, I, I don't know. I've got to pray about that, I guess, on a case-by-case -case basis. But here's what I, what I learned as I studied this passage more. This priest and this Levite, they're not on their way to church. If you read this story carefully, they're leaving Jerusalem, right? And so they're going, they're, 
they're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, or at least the man is. They're apparently going the same direction. So it's not like, oh, I've got you know, responsibilities in the, in, the, in the temple that I've got to get to. So a Levite, when he came by to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, now, if you're Jesus' audience that day, we, we don't really catch this, but if you're Jesus' audience that day and, and you're Jewish people and some of you are Jewish leaders and experts in the law and Pharisees, when Jesus says, and a Samaritan came by, it's like your gut response would be, boo, hiss. You know, like sometimes when I say how I went to UCLA and some of you boo, <laughs> I call us Bruins a persecuted minority in the Northwest. But it's far worse than that, right? Jews, they, they despise the Samaritans. They looked down on them. They were half-breeds. They were, you know, people that had kind of mishmashed the, the, the Jewish faith. And, and uh, they despised the Samaritans. So th- this is a shocking story. We don't always catch the shocking element of it. This is a shocking story because Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, is telling a story to a Jewish audience, including Jewish religious leaders. And he makes the hero of the story a dreaded, hated Samaritan. Right, so so you know this story, verse thirty-three, uh, Luke ten thirty-three. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, rather than crossing to the other side, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out his two denarii. That would be like one day's wage, a denarius. He took, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Was, this man, not only did he not cross on the other side to avoid the, the wounded man, but he comes, he stops, he, he cares, he tends his wounds, not only that, he puts the man on his own donkey, takes him to the inn, you know, checks him in, pays his bill, tells the innkeeper, you take care of him. I'm on a business trip. When I come back, I'm going to you know, repay you for any other expenses. This is an incredible act of mercy and compassion and love by the least expected person, right? By the Samaritan. And then Jesus says to his Jewish audience, which of these three, okay? This is not rocket science here. There's a priest who crossed by on the other side. There's a Levite who crossed by on the other side. And then there's the Samaritan. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. He cannot even say the Samaritan. He hates Samaritans so much. He can't even say the Samaritan was a neighbor. He says, well, I suppose it's the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, you've heard this story before. I don't know if you've thought about this, though. Jesus turned the story around. The man said, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus talked about what it means to be a neighbor, right? And he, he asked this question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And so this is the question now. It's not just who is my neighbor, and I can discriminate because some people are worth caring for and others aren't. It's, it's who is the neighbor? You're to be the neighbor. I'm to be the neighbor. And what it means to be a neighbor is to care for people, not just caring for one another within the body, within the fellowship. It's to care for people that are in need. It's to p- care for people that we come across. It's to care for people that we encounter. Do you know the word agape? 
I used to be part of a community. Our, our whole name was Agape Fellowship. But the word agape is a Greek word that means love. And there are several Greek words that are translated into English as love. But the word agape is a very special love because agape love is not just friendship love. It's not erotic love. It's not romantic love. The word agape has to do with selfless love. It has to do with self-giving love. Sometimes we call it unconditional love. Agape love is selfless, it's self-giving, it's concerned for others, it's concerned about what needs to be done to make someone else's life complete. Now, this is the key to making ethical decisions. Jesus and, and the Apostle Paul here is saying that uh, we're to love with agape love. It's like asking the question, uh, how can I act so that others become the persons that God wants them to be? Not just, what do I want to do for them? How can I act? How can I relate to people? How can I care for people so that they could become what God wants them to be? So that they can have their needs met and they can experience what God wants for their lives. So that means caring for them sometimes in physical ways, tangible ways, uh, financial ways, giving the gifts of our time and our talents and our treasure. It also means, I think it's got to mean this, that whenever we have opportunity, then we would seek opportunities to share with them what they really need to make their life complete, which is to know their creator, to hear the good news of Jesus. That, that is an act of love because love gives what a person needs to make their life complete. Now, now he also says here in verses 8 to 10, he says that, if we really let love be our ruling principle in life, and if we really let love guide our decisions, then he says you won't do stuff like commit adultery. You won't unnecessarily harm people and hurt people and murder people. You won't steal from them. You won't covet from them. Because if we love, love will safeguard us against uh, a lot of these vices. Right? So it's not like we have to go around with a list of, oh, what can I do, what can't I do, and and we're not supposed to live, you know, rigidly and legalistically and all of that. But we're to go and, and, and say, you know, Lord, this is a new day. How can I love you this day? And whom will you bring across my path that I can love? Some of them are near and I'll see them face to face. Some of them are, you know, living overseas or, you know, in a, in a prison uh, persecuted for their faith or, or someone that's in an inner city situation that's not even my city. But... What, what would it mean to love God and to love our neighbors and not to be always thinking about, well, who's a neighbor and who's not, but to say what Jesus said, you be the neighbor. Which of these was a neighbor to the man who was hurt, to the hurt man, right? Okay, so if you love, then you won't commit adultery. If you love, you won't murder. If you love, you won't steal. If you love, you won't covet uh, what belongs to someone else. Rather, you, you know what you would do? You would be glad for them if they have something that you don't have. Coveting means, you know, I, I long for and want and desire and thirst for uh, something that someone else has, right? And, and it's one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's the tenth of the Ten Commandments. Uh, don't covet your neighbor's wife or house or ox or, or slave or whatever. And, and, and the idea here is that rather than thinking about I want what you want, I would be happy for what you have. I mean, not that I want what you have, but rather that I'd be happy for what you have. And that's love. It's about selfless and self-giving. Uh, I, I love this uh, thing that I heard once about this acronym for love. You know, in a time and age where, where a lot of people, uh, they, can't, they can't really distinguish between love and lust, right? Uh, lust says, uh, 
you know, when I, when I say I love you, what I really mean is I, I want you. I love me and I want you, right? Uh, but real love is, can be described this way, and this is the best definition I've heard uh, besides the ones in the Bible. Uh, love means A, B, C, D, E, right? You heard me talk about this? Love means I accept you as you are. Love means I believe you are valuable. Love means I care when you hurt. Love means I desire what's best for you. Love means I erase your offenses. That's been so helpful for me ever since I heard that on a, on a radio sermon uh, many years ago. Uh, a, B, C, D, E. What, what does it really mean to love? Uh, and you think about this in a marriage, in a dating relationship, in a parent-child relationship, or in a relationship you're building with a coworker or a neighbor. It's not about romance and eroticism and, and desire. It's about if I love you, I will accept you as you are. I will believe you are valuable. I will care when you hurt. I will desire what's best for you. I will erase your offenses, meaning I'll have a forgiving spirit. You know, in any good relationship, in any deep relationship, there's, our time's going to be misunderstandings, conflict, miscommunications, hurt feelings, right? And the test of a good relationship is not one where there's never any hurt or never any conflict. The test of a good relationship is can you resolve those conflicts in a helpful and healthy way? Can you resolve those conflicts in a way that expresses love and truth, grace and truth? Can you resolve those conflicts in a way where the relationship comes out stronger and not all fractured and bent out of shape? So I think in a good relationship, there needs to be forgiveness. A good marriage, in fact, is going to require two people, and they both have to be good forgivers for there to be a good marriage. Okay, so this is what he's talking about here. He says, uh, I, I think this is really about loving as Jesus loves. If we're saved by grace through faith, we're still uh, honoring the law, but especially the law of love. Right? That's what's most important. Okay, now at the end, let me just talk a little bit about the last few verses of, uh, of Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. He says, and do this. Do what? I think he's talking about love, right? Love one another. Love your neighbor. Uh, love does no harm. Love is the fulfillment of the law. He says, do this, all this loving, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, that's a puzzling statement because a lot of us, we would think, well, actually, my salvation is farther now than when I first believed. When I first believed, I got saved. For me, it was, you know, decades ago. And with each year, we would think that my salvation is further from me, right? Now, here's the view is our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. In other words, I'm getting closer and closer to salvation. Here's what we have to understand. The Bible talks about salvation in different ways. There's past salvation when you confess your with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And if you've done that, you were saved, whether it was you know, a day you can remember or you could just say it was during a certain period of my life. Uh, so there's past salvation. There's present salvation where sometimes the Bible talks about how we who are being saved, it's an ongoing process. And then here, there's future salvation. And so what we read here is, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And this is talking about the culmination of our salvation when Jesus returns. And he is going to return, and every day we get nearer to that day, uh, the culmination of our salvation. 
And then he says this in verse 12, Romans 13, verse 12. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, the clothing of light, right? Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in, okay, here's a good list for you, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, that means like indecency, not in dissension and jealousy, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, there's a picture here that Paul is painting, and it's important that we grasp it. He basically is pointing to a doctrine that we call uh, the kingdom of God, and he's saying we live between the ages. When Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came uh, inaugurating the kingdom of God in this world. Uh, But the kingdom has not yet come in all its fullness. So we live in the time of the already, already the king has come and the kingdom has come, but we live in the time of the not yet because the king has not returned in his glory and majesty and power. The first time Jesus came, he came in weakness and humility and he suffered and died. Uh, When he comes again, he's going to come in power and glory and majesty to rule and to reign. So we live between his first coming and his second coming. We live between the already and the not yet. Sometimes it's said, uh, we live between the ages. And, and we live today in light of the coming kingdom. So here's the imagery that Paul used. He talks a lot here about, about sleep. He says it's time to wake up from sleep. He says the night is nearly over. We still live in the night in the sense of you know, this age of, of some darkness and evil. It's not total daytime yet. It's not not yet. right? We're not there yet, but he's saying it's like maybe in the wee hours of the morning, and you wake up and it's still dark, but, but you know that you're going to have to get up soon because it's almost daylight. He's saying, that's the situation. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's saying, that's the situation you live in. We still live in nighttime, but we are to live as the children of the day. Uh, did, did you catch that in those verses? He says, he says, The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Uh, In the nighttime, we associate the nighttime sometimes with violence, right? evil, darkness, uh, drunkenness, sexual immorality. Right? Strife and fighting and violence. And I, I remember telling our, our kids when they were growing up, you know, don't stay out too late, you know, and the most dangerous time might be two o'clock when the bars close and there's, you know, inebriated, uh, drunken people driving around and uh, a, lot, a lot of bad stuff happens, you know, uh, late at night. And, and, you know, we get that and that's our image and, and often that's, that's true. Uh, so the image Paul is using here is he's saying, yeah, don't live in the darkness. Even if you still live in a dark time or a dark, Uh, society. Uh, Don't live in the darkness. Live as the children of light. And what that means, I think, for us, you know, in Philippians it says, we are already citizens of heaven. Right? We don't live in heaven yet, but we're already citizens of heaven. So live as a citizen of the nation to which you belong. Right? So this is, I think, what it means for us is that we are the children of the day, even though there may be darkness and unbelief and cruelty and hatred around us. We are to live as the children of the light. We are to live as those who already embrace today the standards of the kingdom, the rules of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom, of righteousness and justice and peace. 
and love for God and love for neighbor. We are to be those who, who display that now. And, and how do we do that? We think, well, that's really hard. That's a high calling and that's a difficult task. Uh, here's how we do it. And this is the last verse. Romans 13, verse 14. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. I think this is how we're going to live as the children of the light, is that we're going to increasingly, day by day, clothe ourselves with Christ. It means we would come to him maybe at the beginning of every day and present ourselves to him, uh, say, Lord Jesus, here am I, I belong to you. Uh, Lord Jesus, clothe me in your love. Help me to go through this day and every hour of this day in your presence. And, and would you just surround me with your love? Would you just fill my heart with your love? Would you enable me to see other people, not as enemies, not as threats, not as competitors, but as neighbors of people who need your love, people who need to be brought into completion through the grace and truth of Jesus? And, and would you help me to live in such a way that people would see you and see your love? Even a lot of what we're doing in this community, I know everybody doesn't share the burden for the Phantom Lake community or the Lake Hills community, and a lot of us don't live here, but these are our neighbors whom we are called to love. You know, you're called to love the people who live on your street as well, or the kids who, you know, I mean, the, the, the people who work where you work or go to school where you go to school. But we're here on Sundays, and you think about this, wouldn't it be awesome if the neighborhood was glad that we're here. They don't just think, oh man, aren't those those people that block our streets on Sunday and park in front of our houses? Wouldn't it be awesome if people said, wow, you're from Lighthouse? We love Lighthouse. You know, we're hearing that more and more from our neighbors and from people at the school. Uh, many of them, they're not church people, they're not Christians, they're not believers, but they're hearing um, and seeing good news through people in our church. And I love that, and I think, you know, that's what it ought to be. This is what it ought to be, uh, whether you live here or not, that we ought to be good news here. We ought to be good neighbors, you know, here, where you live, where you work, where you go to school. But it, it's so vital that, that this is our calling to love as Jesus loves and to love one another, but then to love the neighbors, those that God would bring across our path. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you that uh, the light is coming and the day is dawning, the day of the new age and the day of the new world and the kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. It's all coming, and in a sense, it's already here. For, Lord, as you rule in the lives of your people, we get to have a foretaste of the kingdom of God. But not only that, Lord, you have called us to be for others a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And so we pray, Lord, that we could do this. We could clothe ourselves anew and afresh every day with Jesus Christ. That you would be in us, that you would fill us, that you would surround us, that you would flow through us, that you would shine through us, Lord, so that we could point people to the light and that we could offer hope to people of that coming day when every wrong will be right and every tear will be dried and every wound will be healed and every fractured relationship will be reconciled. And Lord, we want to live in light of that day. 
thank you, Lord, for the great privilege and honor of being your kingdom people. In Jesus' name, amen.